Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, June 28th, 2020. May God use this to be a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, no matter where it is that we're worshiping as we watch this today, be acceptable in your sight. You who are a rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 2007, I had the pleasure of traveling from Hawaii to Kansas City for a conference at the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. And while I was there, I took a short excursion over to the Nelson Atkins Museum, and I got to see, up close and personal, original works of art by such famed artists as Monet, Van Gogh, Degas, Picasso, and Georgia O'Keeffe. It was amazing, quite an experience for uh, this kid from Hawaii. And, and I know it's hard to tell, but we're actually in the middle of summer now, folks. And uh, one of the things that people used to do pre-COVID-19 was to visit places in the summer that they wouldn't normally visit, like museums, right? I know a lot of people that love to go to museums. I, I even recently discovered that's true for penguins as well. Let's watch. We are so happy to today welcome our colleagues from the zoo and they brought special friends and actually we're seeing how they're reacting to art. Taking care of wild animals at the Kansas City Zoo, we're always looking for ways to enrich their lives and stimulate their days. And during this shutdown period, our animals really miss having visitors come out and see them. They seem definitely to react much better to Caravaggio than to Monet. And uh, these are Peruvian penguins, so we were speaking a bit in Spanish and they really appreciated art history. We were happy to visit and the penguins absolutely loved it. Wasn't that fun? Uh, these are Peruvian penguins, so we were speaking to them in Spanish, and they really appreciated it. Classic. Well, welcome to a brand new sermon series I'm calling Masterpiece, the spirituality behind classic works of art. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be spending time getting to know a different masterpiece in the art world each week. We'll find out about the artist, how the piece was created, and then some of the spiritual ties that are either explicit or implicit within that particular work of art, or at least how I perceive it to be. Today we begin the series by looking at one of the greatest sculptures in the world, Michelangelo's Pietà. And the vast majority of what I'm going to share with you today comes from one of my favorite authors, Ken Geyer. His short book, The Work of His Hands, is a marvelous unveiling of the Pietà. Geyer argues that God uses the everyday circumstances of our lives to chip away at some of the sometimes stubborn stone of ourselves so that we might conform to the image of Christ. 
In fact, the book's subtitle is The Agony and the Ecstasy of Being Conformed to the Image of Christ, which, of course, is a reference to the 1961 book by Irving Stone, The Agony and and the Ecstasy, about the life of Michelangelo, and it was the subject of the 1965 film by the same title. So why would I begin this series on great pieces of art with a sculpture rather than a painting? Well, Geyer himself was inspired by a small picture book by photographer Robert Hupka, who who had the pleasure of shooting uh, photos of the Pieta when the sculpture was on loan here in the United States at the New York World's Fair in 1964 and 1965. Hupka's friend, Charles Rich, said this about the experience of seeing the Pieta in person. He said, There is so much in the Pietà that if you lived a thousand years and wrote a thousand books, you can never express it. In other words, there is a divine quality in it. It must have been inspired because how could a boy, 24 years old, create a work like that? You can't imagine how. It was a special grace from God. Michelangelo Bonarotti was born on March 6th 1475 in Tuscany, Italy. He became, along with uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the creative force behind the Italian Renaissance. He was a painter, sculptor, architect. Most of us know that. But what many of us don't know is that he also wrote poems. My unassisted heart is barren clay. That is, Of its native self can nothing feed. Of good and pious works, thou art the seed. That quickens only where thou sayest it may. Unless thou show to us thine own true way, no man can find it. Father, thou must lead. Michelangelo was a devout man who depended on God not only for his eternal life, but for his everyday life as well. In a letter to his nephew, Leonardo, he underscores this by saying, I work out of love for God and I put all my hope in him. Geyer writes, his passion for God and his passion for art were inextricably woven into a seamless garment that was his life, so much so that you could not pull on the thread of one without tugging at the other. Michelangelo was the quintessential Renaissance man producing uh, over his lifetime a body of work that was as diverse as it was distinguished. He wrote poetry, sonnets mostly, but also madrigals, which are short love poems that can be set to music. He was the chief architect for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. His more noted paintings include the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and the Last Judgment, which stands behind Uh, the altar in the chapel. Two of his most famous sculptures are David and Moses, but his most monumental achievement is the Pietà. The Pietà was commissioned by a French cardinal in 1498 who stipulated that it should be a Virgin Mary clothed with the dead Christ in her arms as large as a well-made man. He would pay Michelangelo 450 gold ducats in papal gold. And the artist agreed to compete the statue uh, from start of chiseling to finish in just about one year. And amazingly, that's exactly what he did. It took about two years for the whole project to find the, the, the marble, but sculpting from start to finish just about one year. 
and he was 24 years old when he completed it. His final touch was to add his name on the ribbon that sashed Mary's garment. Michelangelo Bonarotti of Florence made this. In fact, it was the only sculpture piece he ever signed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For the sculpture, Michelangelo searched the quarries for just the right type of stone. The marble he picked came from the Apuan Mountains above the city of Carrara, a quarry that's still in operation today. And in fact, if, uh, if you're a James Bond fan and you saw the film Quantum of Solace, there was a car chase scene that went through this very same quarry. Michelangelo often spent months in Carrara where he carefully selected the marble, oversaw its extraction, and arranged its transportation. The marble in Michelangelo's day was extracted from a quarry by drilling holes into the rock and then inserting wooden wedges into that hole and then soaking those wedges in water. And as the wedges expanded, they sent fissures running down the rock, causing the marble to break free in one massive block. The block was then secured by ropes and eased out of the quarry on rollers until it can be put on a cart and taken to the nearest harbor where it could find safe passage over the Mediterranean seas. Michelangelo labored day and night to finish the sculpture on time. He lost weight. He took sick, but he never stopped working. He believed that his figures were trapped inside the marble, and if he listened to the stone, he could chip away at everything that wasn't part of the creation, liberating what he wanted to create. At, once, at one time he explained, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Structurally, the Pieta is shaped like a pyramid, but within the pyramid there is also a cross with Mary forming the vertical beam and Jesus the horizontal. The sculpture combines various levels of Juxtapositions, notes Ken Geyer, mother and son, life and death, sorrow and serenity, the fully clothed mother and the barely clothed son, the hand of Mary that clutches him and the one that releases him. In order for the body of Christ to fit harmoniously within this structure of the pyramid, Michelangelo adjusted the proportions of his figures. In fact, Mary's arms and legs, for example, are exaggerated, but the exaggeration is hidden by the folds of her garment, so you don't really notice it. Should the two figures, however, be stood upright and, and placed side by side, Jesus would stand at five feet, eight inches tall. Mary would tower over him at seven foot one. On the other hand, her face, which is not in proportion to the rest of her body, is in proportion to Christ's face. From the overall structure to the smallest detail, the, the Pieta is a work of unsurpassed beauty. Michelangelo sculpted four Pietas over the course of his lifetime. The first and most well-known is at St. Peter's Basilica, residing in Rome. There are two others in Florence and one in Milan. Sadly, the latter three never approached the magnificence of that first one. Giorgio Vasari, the 16th century classic writer, in his book, The Lives of the Artists, wrote this about the Pietà. It would be impossible 
For any craftsman or sculptor, no matter how brilliant, ever to surpass the grace or design of this work, or to try and cut and polish the marble with the skill that Michelangelo displayed, it is certainly a miracle that a formless block of stone could ever have been reduced to a perfection that nature is scarcely able to create in the flesh. In the ancient Near East, the extent of a king's rule was marked by the placement of his image throughout the kingdom. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar had a 90-foot golden image of himself placed in Babylon, so all would know who was the king. Right? Such images would announce to everyone not only who the ruler of the area was, but how strong he was and how much he should be feared. It's not exactly the way God does things. In fact, in giving the Ten Commandments, God instructed the people not to make any images of himself at all. Instead, God fashioned human beings in God's image, male and female. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his monumental book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this. Since fallen man cannot rediscover and assimilate the form of God, the only way is for God to take the form of a man and come to him. The Son of God who dwelt in the form of God the Father lays aside that form and comes to man in the form of a slave. The change of form which could not take place in man now takes place in God. In Christianity, we call this the incarnation. When God chose to take on human form and live among us. In fact, John 1 verse 14, according to the Message Bible translation, says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? Jesus did just that, and ultimately it cost him everything. That's just part of the mystery that the Pieta displays. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Paul was writing to a church in turmoil, and scholars are divided. They're not exactly sure why it was that the church was struggling, but evidently it was very serious. Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, Paul writes. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It's a beautifully written passage, don't you think? Of course there is encouragement in Christ. And of course there is consolation from love and sharing and compassion and sympathy. And so, Paul writes, we have everything we need to rebuild a stronger community, no matter what it is that we might be going through. We've been struggling collectively as human beings with this COVID-19 pandemic. And, and as Americans, we've also had to look deep within ourselves and within our communities to see where we have been complicit in allowing racism, hatred, and bigotry to survive over the centuries. And at times it seems overwhelming, doesn't it? 
How can we possibly overcome the racial, political, and theological issues that seem to so deeply divide us, even within our own families? But according to Philippians 2, we have everything we need to build a stronger community. You see, it's not enough to simply mind our own business. Paul says we must be about the business of others, the business of lifting others up, of putting others' needs ahead of our own, especially important during this pandemic time when what we do impacts so many other people. When we live with humility and grace, then encouragement, consolation, compassion, sympathy, and joy will follow, says Paul. How can that be? Verses 6 to 8. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." A while back, Gatorade had a multi-million dollar marketing ad campaign around the superstar NBA basketball player Michael Jordan. And the slogan was very simple. Be like Mike, right? Drink Gatorade and you will emulate Michael Jordan. As a basketball player in his 50s, I wish it was that simple. As Christians, Paul says, when you're not sure what to do, be like Jesus, Live your life for others. In humility, work for the good of those around you. At Palmdale United Methodist Church, we put it this way. We are inspired by Jesus to love. Right? We look at his life and how he lived and moved and had his being and how he put others ahead of himself, and we realize that is what we need to follow. No matter what it is that we believe theologically, if we are inspired by Jesus to love, then this world will be a better place and we will be known as Christ followers. Dr. Jin Young Lee was one of my seminary professors at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey in the early 90s. In his book, Sermons to the Twelve, Dr. Lee comments on how emptiness has a very different meaning for those who are from the East than it does for most of us in the West. He says this, For most Asians, emptiness is often more valuable than fullness. It means more than nothing. It carries a positive value. Christ emptied himself of his glory, the glory of being equal to God. He emptied himself of his power, the almighty power over all things. He emptied himself of his authority to rule the world. By emptying himself of the form of God, he was transformed into the form of a servant. Jesus embraced that role wholeheartedly. He willingly gave himself away for others over and over again. In fact, he gave himself away for everyone. As Fred Craddock says in his interpretation commentary on Philippians, Paul knows the church in Philippi, they don't need to be scolded. They need to be reminded of the event that created and defined their life together. It's all about Jesus. And not just what he did for us, that is important for sure, but also we are called then to do those very same things for others. 
Many of you have seen this photo in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Firemen and emergency workers are carrying the dead body of Father Michael Judge, a firehouse chaplain who died in the World Trade Center disaster. Along with being a Franciscan friar, Father Michael was a chaplain to the New York City Fire Department. And when he heard about the first plane hitting the Trade Center, Michael ran out into the streets where he was met by Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, who asked him to pray for the city and for the victims. Michael administered last rites to some bodies lying in the streets, then entered the lobby of the World Trade Center's North Tower, where an emergency command post had been organized. And there, he continued offering aid and prayers for the rescuers, for the injured, and for the dead. While inside the North Tower, Father Michael removed his helmet to administer last rites to a fireman who was on the verge of dying. And when the South Tower collapsed at 9.59 a.m., debris went flying through the North Tower lobby. Many inside were killed, including Father Michael. Shortly afterwards, he was pulled from the rubble. This picture has become one of the most famous images related to the attacks of 9-11. They carried his ash-covered body to St. Peter's Catholic Church, laid him on the altar, covering with a white sheet and placing his helmet on his chest. And over 3,000 people attended his funeral on September 15th at St. Francis of Assisi Church. Ken Geyer writes, When I look at that picture, I don't see a priest. I don't see a Catholic. I don't even see a chaplain. I see Jesus. And those around him saw Jesus too. The image of those men carrying Father Michael, that is a modern-day pieta. And we may never be called to give our lives in the same way Father Michael did, but as followers of Jesus, we are called to put the needs of others ahead of our own. That's what it means to be inspired by Jesus to love. Toyohiko Kagawa was a 19th century Japanese Christian author and social reformer. In his book, Meditations, he writes this. God should not be sought for in books, nor in the organization of institutions. God should not be looked for theoretically, but God should be loved. God reveals himself only in love. God is understood best where there is an abundance of love. Father Michael knew this. That's how he lived his life. Paul knew this. That's why he wrote his letter to the church in Philippi. Jesus knew this. That's why he lived the way that he did. And the Pieta reminds us of this very truth. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Michelangelo left behind some of the most significant sculptures the world has ever known. Madonna of the Stairs was his earliest. He finished it when he was 16 years old, followed by Bacchus, the Pietà, David, Moses, and the tomb of Giuliano de' Michi, among others. He attempted a total of 44 sculptures. He finished just 14 of them. Why he abandoned the others remains, for the most part, a mystery. And of those 30 sculptures that the artist abandoned, I want to lift up three of them. 
1506, Michelangelo began to sculpt a marble figure of St. Matthew nearly nine feet high. It was to decorate the interior of Florence's Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. The left knee and thigh of the sculptures are almost finished. The upper portion of the torso has only been superficially worked. His face is formed, but only very roughly. Another unfinished work began in 1513 called The Dying Slave. It was intended for the tomb of Julius II. The legs, torso, and left arm are finished and polished, but the face is unhewn, as are the hands and the feet. Then there's the final work of his life, the Rondadini Pieta, which he worked for for 10 years. Vasari writes that Michelangelo ended up breaking the block, probably because the latter was full of impurities, and so hard that sparks flew from under his chisel. The sculpture was rescued by a servant, and it survives still to this day. It bears the marks of Michelangelo's chisel, but none of the beauty of his earlier Pietà. Sculptor Lorenzo Dominguez once summarized the dilemma of his own work as a sculptor as this. The stone wants to be stone. The artist wants it to be art. I think the same dilemma exists for those of us who are the work of God's hands. In an attempt to free the image of Christ that is encased within the stone of ourselves, God begins chipping away in our lives at everything that isn't Jesus. And the stone either submits to the chipping or we resist. If it submits, features of the Savior begin to emerge in our lives, and if it submits long enough, the Savior himself comes through. If, however, it resists and continues to resist, there will come a day when God will simply let the stone be stone. C.S. Lewis said as much when he stated that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, go ahead and have it your way. Friends, we don't want to be the kind of stone that resists our master sculptor. We want to be men, women, and young people of faith who begin to show forth the Savior as God chips away any and everything from our lives that is not of God. And it's a lifelong process for sure, but it's one we all can submit to if we choose. So I have to ask, has God been tugging at your heart today? Has the Holy Spirit been whispering to your soul, don't fight it, submit to my chisel? Because God doesn't want to destroy us, friends. He wants to reveal God's self in our very lives. And if you've never submitted to God's authority and control in your life, why not do so today? All you have to do is invite him in and he will come. God never forces himself upon us. Or maybe... You've given your life to Christ many years ago, but during this time of this global pandemic, you felt that tug again, that God is wanting to change more of what's happening in your life. 
that God's not finished with you yet, and you sense that God is wanting to do something new in your heart and your life this day, and so if that's you, I invite you to welcome the same chisel of the Lord and simply ask for God's will to be done within you and to give you the strength each day to submit to what God wants to do. Friends, we are the work of God's hands. We are the greatest masterpieces that God has created. By the grace of God, each and every one of us can become more and more like Christ Jesus every day. We are inspired by Jesus to love. Thanks be to God for the amazing artistry of Michelangelo. And thanks be to God for his divine chisel that molds and shapes us into who God has created us to be. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.